The Free For All Roundtable. Round two. On the round table today, Pamela Palmater is here, lawyer, professor, and activist, Mississauga City Councilor Deepika DeMerla, and Brad Bradford, Toronto City Councilor, at the moment is unaccounted for because apparently he's stuck on the TTC. He's in transit. He's in. Oh, the irony of a Toronto City Councilor getting screwed by the TTC. Uh, but listen, let's start with Toronto's budget, and I don't think either one of you are ratepayers in Toronto, but I'm sure you probably have some opinions about Olivia Chow at the very last minute ratcheting a tax increase down into the single digits, uh, 9.5 instead of 10.5. Uh, Deepika, should we be grateful? Well, you know, uh, I think if we are talking about the psychological $9.99 versus $10 thing, I, I don't think that's going to work because I think the narrative that this is a very big tax increase has set in. But I think in real terms, there's really, uh, John, a lot of families that are struggling to pay their property taxes. I know this. And so a three, on average, $350 break, that would be a big deal for a lot of families. It might mean now they can go ahead and do something that they would not have been able to do because they had to pay an extra $350. So I think on the ground, uh, yes, it will make a uh, uh, difference. What I'm curious and want to learn and here is where is that $42 million in savings going to come from to um make that cut happen. So yeah. I guess. And well, Pamela, I think Dipika's right. It's not a huge amount of money in terms of the difference it's going to make per household. But if we're going to obsess over the price of gas on a daily basis, then maybe we got to obsess over the mill rate. Um, okay. Well, you know, she, she has to balance all of these competing interests. She has to be able to provide services to Torontonians. She has to find the money. She's already did her line-by-line -line budget to, you know, find savings there. Um, she's asking federal and provincial governments for supports for a wide variety of things. So um, a, a couple hundred dollars. I know that for low-income families who can't even own a house, they literally life and death support you know, depend on those services where some of the families in Toronto who live in very expensive housing, aside from apartments, obviously, but the housing, um, a couple hundred dollars, I'm not saying that it doesn't hurt, but in comparison to the life and death services that they need to provide to low-income and homeless Torontonians, I don't think there's much of a contest. Uh, I think we found Brad Bradford, not in the flesh necessarily, but he's on Zoom. Is he plugged in yet or he's still calling? Do we have Brad? Oh, I'm here. Hi. Uh, here. So you, uh, what happened on the TTC? Well, you know, uh, unfortunately, a typical TTC experience, not dissimilar from what you were describing last week, delays in throttle back service uh, that just made it a little bit slower to get into the, the show today. Okay. <laughs> well, listen, let's talk about the budget because Olivia Chow will roll her version out at 1030. Uh, very leaky at City Hall over the last 24 hours, I find. I hear an awful lot of what's in it. And the most important takeaway would be uh, not as big a tax increase. And I guess I'll ask you the same thing, Brad Bradford, because I know you're more conservative fiscally. Um, I asked Dipika, should we be grateful for this or have we been played? Uh, you know, you know, for me, I, I think that this was a long process. They put the, the double digit number out there to get people worked up. Uh, but at the end of the day, Torontonians are waking up to the largest tax increase in the history of the city at a time when we're experiencing an affordability crisis. You know, the mayor and I discussed this a lot during the campaign. 
I asked her over and over again, how high was the tax increase going to be? And uh, she promised us something modest. There's nothing modest about a record-breaking tax increase. And this is really going to hurt people's pocketbooks. Okay. And I I have to describe to the listeners how wiggy this is, because Brad arrived in the building, but he's on Zoom, but he's standing in the window looking at me. So it's a very good morning. There you are in the flesh. Okay, sit down, take out the the Bluetooth, and you can join us in the flesh. Isn't that that bizarre going from the Zoom to now in the room sitting here on the mic with you? Yes. Well, but also watching you speak to me through a window, I thought, what am I, bubble boy? And and listeners can probably hear, I'm out of breath. Of course. I was yeah. running into the studio. I'm sweating. But okay, well, I'll let you here. collect yourself, and we'll move on to the second issue today, which is the Fed's finally ponied up money for refugees. Pamela Palmenter, uh, we don't know how much Toronto is going to get, and certainly I'll never understand why it took so long, but finally the Feds are going to pay the bill for the refugees. Well, and, and I think that's important. Whenever you have laws or policies, um, whether they're good policies, whether you agree with those policies, and they have financial implications, they should come with a Treasury Board submission that says, here's how we're going to make sure that we pay for the costs. For example, I could say tomorrow, I'm going to adopt 50 children. But if I don't have a place for them to live and I don't have any money for food for them, um, that's not responsible on my part. So they really do have an obligation. I'm glad to hear that they, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, but from what Toronto and Montreal's position is that that's not even going to cut it for Toronto. So I think we really need to take a look at whether this is just a first installment, which it could be there, you know, some inclinations, there could be a little bit more, but let's hope that they find a way to pay for this because we have other homelessness issues too, right? Of, yep. of Canadians. So we really need to deal with it on a widespread basis. Divica, is Mississauga in line for any of this money? Well, uh, I certainly hope so, but uh, I don't know how much, uh, John, given that we know that the pot's not big enough. The pot's simply not big enough. I know that uh, at the region of Peel, we're looking at about $55 million, including, um, you know, back pay, I'm going to call it, from what we spent in 2023. And here's the thing that, uh, you know, I just want to say that Pamela touched on where she said, well, and I've spoken about this before, you cannot put health and human services and social services on property taxes. It just doesn't work because property tax is a flat tax. It's a regressive tax. So we need the higher levels of government who have more progressive taxes, taxation tools to fund us. And this bickering, this, you know, okay, so we'll give you $5 instead of 10, it just takes us nowhere. It's a lot of emotional energy spent. The feds should just fund us for the full amount, clean and simple. Um, and so I'm not at all hopeful that we'll get the full amount. And just a quick reminder, whatever we is the deficit between what the feds fund us and what we actually spend on the ground to support asylum seekers will have to go on the property tax bill. Okay, Brad Bradford, how much of a cavalry to the rescue moment was it for the minister to make this announcement yesterday? Well, I'm, I'm happy that they made the announcement, but this, this was not a surprise. Like, for all of the sort of hype around this and the political posturing and the feds smacking the city and the mayor smacking the feds, uh, we knew this deal was going to get done. There's five years of history around the federal government coming through with a check at the end of the year for asylum seekers. This is no different. They do it based on the submission of receipts. So we give them some indication of the volume and the numbers of refugees and asylum seekers in our shelters. 
and they pay the bill. Is it more difficult than we would like? Is it a protracted discussion, negotiation? Yes, but you got five years of this government stepping up to do that uh, and coming to the table. The reality is everybody understands refugees and asylum seekers are uh, federal jurisdiction. And I think Pamela made a good point. There should be a financial understanding of the policy decisions that get made at other levels of government and and how we're going to pay for it. And I would also say we should have a better line of sight into that stuff at City Hall too, because there's lots of motions that fly on the floor of council and they do have a financial impact. And that's frankly how we start uploading all of these services uh, that go beyond core services at the City of Toronto because people just walk motions on the floor and it gets very expensive. Have councillors been given a copy of Olivia Chow's version of the budget ahead of this morning's official reveal? I can tell you I haven't. (laughs) Maybe that's not a surprise to some of our listeners. Uh, But I was on the phone with a number of uh, my colleagues last night, Uh, some folks that would probably put themselves in the the category of allies uh, of the mayor, and and they hadn't seen it either. Um, For all the hype around this being the most transparent and consultive budget process, uh, we're still waking up with with a a budget that that probably isn't going to fix the police challenge, it's probably not going to fix the windrow issues, and it's the largest tax increase ever. There seems to be this um, ongoing campaign to effectively say, here's what's wrong with electric cars. And the latest, we learned this morning that they've been doing tests on guardrails. And apparently because electric cars are heavier, they're going to go through the guardrails. So everybody in one is going to die. Deepika, you know, nobody ever made a, a big deal out of guardrails when we started moving toward bigger and bigger and bigger cars that are as tall as me. So I'm not sure why we have to do this when it comes to electric cars. Yeah, you know, the first thing that I thought about was, well, what about the Mack trucks? Like, does that mean that right now as we speak, if I'm assuming that the Macs are still heavier than EVs, so are the guardrails not good enough for that? That was the first thing I thought. But I think there is a point, John, that um, the, tr- and the cars are heavier, and so we just need to re-engineer stuff. I was also reading that, for instance, multi-level parking garages have to be reinforced differently if you have 50% EVs versus 10% EVs. So today it's okay, but if you're going to have 50% EVs, they are heavier. So it's fine. It's what you need to do. I mean, yeah. Um, Brad, I have to say I've never counted on a guardrail for anything. Yeah, you know, now you got those Teslas with the self-driving features, so maybe it's all going to be fine. We're not crashing and, and putting it in the guardrail. But uh, it's it's an interesting thing to consider. And back to the previous point about governments really ought to consider the entire financial implications of their decisions. We have a federal government ramping up the, the pressure, EVs 2030, 2035. 2035, yeah. Yeah, and so, like, that's a nice aspirational goal. I think we're a long way from it. But as Tipica said, you know, Parking garages, have they been engineered and reinforced to deal with the additional weight of the batteries? We're talking about guardrails that we're going to bust through. Uh, Best practice, try not to run in the guardrail, and I think that's the safest option, but we always have to upgrade infrastructure as technology evolves. Pamela, are you terrified of electric cars? (laughs) No, but I don't think that they'll stop trashing electric cars anytime soon. I mean, this, this has been happening ever since the invention of electric cars. Um, there have been, I mean, they had no choice but to update when there were heavy vehicles on the road. And now there's even more of them. And hello, transport trucks, which are carrying double loads and all of the other things that are on the roads. And they're worried about some of the electric vehicles, which in fact weigh sometimes as much as half 
of what a larger pickup truck weighs. So I don't know. I don't see a lot of merit in that. They should always be updating their safety um, as we go along anyway. Premier of Alberta yesterday not only said that they're going to have this business of requiring parents to consent for a name or pronoun change at school, but I think more sweepingly, um, they're banning any kind of gender-affirming treatment until the age of 17. And Pamela, it strikes me as ironic that people who say parents should be able to decide what's best for their kids are telling parents one thing that they cannot consent to is any change for their kids until 17. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to see what all of the exact details of all of these policies are. I mean, they're in a situation right now where for even adults, they have to send their transgender surgeries to Quebec. So Alberta is like way behind the times here. uh, And we don't know what this is based on. Is this based on medical research, psychological research, or is this just a conservative... um, you know, attack on people who have uh, gender identity issues that they want to deal with in a medical way. Um, And again, like you said, do parents have the right to choose or not? And that's going to be a real question in Alberta. And not just for this, but on a wide range of things, including what they learn in school. That's going to have to be our time. We're out of runway, but my thanks to Brad Bradford and uh, Yeoman's Duty in making it here. Uh, Difficult to Marla and Pamela Palmiter. Catch the roundtable. Round one at 745. Round two at 845. Weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.